Okay, well, let's pray. Father, tonight we thank You for Your Word. <clears throat> we thank You that You're good to us. We thank You, God, that, that You provide Your Word and we sow that seed in our hearts. It produces faith that manifests in us, that draws Your grace, that has the supernatural supply that we need. And I pray that as we hear You, we gain insight and gain revelation tonight, not because I said it, but because it's in your word and because you are going to manifest and multiply what you've said to us. Father, we give you thanks tonight. We honor you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, I thought when I came in tonight, you would say you've been talking about what the cra- what crazy world we live in. But you may have done that earlier sometime, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, isn't it amazing? We have, we've got yet another COVID variant. It's like we have the variant of the week now. I mean, you just get them all you want to. And uh, it's called Omicron. And that, that's interesting. Omicron. The World Health Organization named it Omicron. Uh, they, they, they skipped the 14th letter. This is the 15th letter. They skipped the 14th one. Uh, the 14th Greek letter uh, is, is, the, is the Greek letter Gatsai, which is spelled X-I. And, but there's also another guy. His name is spelled X-I. It's, it's pronounced Chi. His name is Chi Jinping. He just happens to be the Chinese Communist president. And they didn't want to name one of those diseases after him. However, it seems like to me that since they released the thing, it ought to be named after him. I, I don't know. <clears throat> that was very political, and I'm not going to apologize. There are countries in our world that are quarantining all citizens that are not vaccinated. You realize it's not really a vaccine. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's like, the, it used to be called the flu vaccine. Now it's called the flu shot. And eventually this is going to be called a, a COVID shot rather than a vaccine. But, but there, anybody, anyone who doesn't have this, this, this COVID shot, there are countries in the world that are, that are quarantining those people. They can't even come out of their houses. Because that's, that's crazy. I mean, our own president, well, some call him the president, has made, an, has made the unvaccinated citizens of the United States enemies of the state. While those who trespass our southern border illegally aren't even required to get a COVID test. That, that's crazy. That's all crazy. We've got our government refuses to acknowledge the reality of natural immunity. They won't even look at what that does, and 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 they 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 don't acknowledge the fact that the, that the virus is is possibly spread mostly due to what are called leaky shots. I don't know if you've read anything, read anything about those, but that's when those who get get a shot don't get any symptoms, but they infect the people around them who haven't had a shot. I mean, these things are these are these are nuts. I mean, we have we live in a world where there are people who believe that that it's their God-given directive to rid the world of Jews and Christians. I mean, that's why they blew up the twin towers on 9/11. That's one of the reasons that the 9/11 virus was was created. Uh, and sadly, these people have become quasi friends of the mainstream media. I mean, that, that's just a sad thing. And that's not even to mention, because these crisis, this crisis of the border is kind of 
gone past. It's not being mentioned as much, but it's still there. It's still as big as it ever was. I mean, not to mention the spiraling inflation that we have, the, 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 the supply chain shortages and the, our tragic surrender to the Taliban in Afghanistan while leaving American citizens behind. I mean, all that's going on right now. Now, let me ask you this question. How does it affect you? How did that all make you feel? Are you, are, you, uh, are you worried? Well, in this room, everybody would say no, just because you know what the answer is supposed to be. Um, but what about when we're home by ourselves? What about when we're with the guys at the coffee shop talking about the world's events? What about, I don't think any ladies here play bridge, but if you played in the bridge club, what, 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 how would you feel if they were talking about it? What would happen in those conversations and, and, and that type of thing? Um, as believers, we know that we mustn't worry. I mean, Jesus said, take no anxious thought. Literally, it says the King James, take no thought, but it literally says, take no anxious thought. In Philippians, it says, be anxious for nothing. Don't let anything make you anxious. Uh, we need to recognize that. Romans 8.15 says, for you've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Fear brings bondage. Do you realize that? It always brings bondage. But you've received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Worry is a form of fear. Always has been. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We mustn't be crippled by fear and worry, because what that will do is it will bring us into bondage. We mustn't allow fear to ever dominate our lives. We must, we must be bold and remain bold and stand for the things of God. Fear of bad things is not from God. I mean... If, if it's bringing you fear, it, God didn't bring it. Fear is an evil, and it's a destructive force. I mean, it makes you vulnerable uh, and susceptible to what you're afraid of. You ever know that? Because that's what happens. It's, it's important that we resist fear and give it no place in our lives. That doesn't mean, <clears throat> doesn't mean the moment of fear. It means the life of fear. I mean, you know, I remember when I was in, 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 in Little League Baseball, that big kid was pitching that day. I was a little bit afraid of him. And he pitched it inside every time. And I thought, gosh, if he hits me, it'll kill me right now. <laughs> but I'm talking about living a lifestyle of fear. Being afraid. The Bible says in Job 3.25, For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. He said, you know, what I've been afraid of has happened to me. And you can read that book and you can find that's exactly what he was afraid of. Hebrews chapter 2 says, for, much, for so much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I like it when it says he had the power of death, but he still tries to make people be afraid of death because he holds people in bondage. Fear always brings bondage. But the Lord has delivered us from all the power of darkness and the fear of death. We were delivered from that. That's why we've got to receive what he's done and not allow fear to creep into our lives. That's what spiritual warfare is about. We, we think spiritual warfare is about a lot of different things. And I'm going to teach on this probably toward the middle of next summer, next year. But fear is basically this. It's fighting deception. 
It's fighting the lies of the devil. Spiritual warfare is that. It's the fight about what you believe. That's what the devil's fighting against. He's fighting against what you believe. He's using deception to wrestle your faith away from you. I thought of this this afternoon. It's not in my notes, but I thought of this. Jesus was talking to Peter. And they're talk, he's talking about people leaving him and all the things he was saying. And, and, and Peter, you know, he was all brash and bold and said, uh-uh, not me. You know, Jesus, I'm with you from now on. You can count them. Even if all these guys run away, I'm with you. And Jesus said to him, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. He says, but I prayed for you that your what? Your faith fail not. What does sifting do? Sifting separates. The devil's desire is to separate you from what you believe. He will do everything he can to create circumstances in your life to make you separate from what you believe. He wants to sift you. Jesus' prayer is that your faith will not fail. That's why when we talk about fighting in the spirit, we're talking about a fight of faith. Because the devil wants to take away what you believe. Fighting in your emotions is not a fight of faith. You can get as emotional as you want to get, but that will do nothing to stop the devil. Unless you're in faith. It'd be great if we could just have a slap fight. <laughs> just start slapping the fire out of the devil. It doesn't work that way. The devil wants to separate you from what you believe. Remember he told that to Peter? What happened? What happened to Peter? He got sifted that night. Set around the fire. And what he believed was sifted away from him. And here he was, sitting by that fire and saying, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. The devil wants to sift you from your faith. He wants you to step away from it. I mean, this fight of faith, we have to learn to think right, speak right. We've got to learn to walk daily in what we believe. The fight is about what you believe. The devil wants to separate you from your faith in the Word of God. I'll tell you, and he is a champion at doing it, not the ultimate champion. But he knows what to do to separate people from what they believe. Wow. The psalmist said in Psalm 34.4, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. That's where our faith needs to be. We're not afraid of, of this or that. Our trust is in the Lord. You know, this Christmas season, People are singing that song, I'm dreaming, dreaming of a white Christmas. Well, I'm dreaming, dreaming of a right Christmas. A Christmas that is free of fear. Free of all the worry and the anxiety. Christmas that, that, that has great victory as we fight the good fight of faith. And as we press on to finish our course, no matter what the devil threatens us with, we need to be free from the fear of death. Maybe our scripture needs to be Philippians 1.28. This is the amplified version. It says, And do not for a moment 
be frightened or intimidated in anything by your opponents and adversaries, for such constancy and fearlessness will be a clear sign, proof and seal to them of their impending destruction, but a sure token and evidence of your deliverance and salvation and that from God. He's saying, you just stand strong. Don't be intimidated. Don't let the devil do anything to you. And that's his tactic. He blinds people's minds. And that's what he's after. So don't let him do it. And we can have a Merry Christmas and we'll just do that. <laughs> we don't have to live our Christmas season afraid, well, what's going to happen to the economy? What's going to happen to this? And You know, I remember one time back in the 80s, they went through this 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 uh, uh, recession. Now, I didn't. I chose not to. But they did. They did what they, they got exactly what they said. What we believed God. We stood with him. We were never afraid. And so we need to learn how to live with what God has told us to do. So with all that, let's talk about Christmas then. Luke chapter 12, 2, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was the governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And Joseph went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was, that while they were there, the days were accomplished, that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now that's the story. That's, I'm going to preach the same sermon close on Christmas Eve. Not as long as this, but because I have a little bit of kids in there. But we've been talking about Christmas the last two times we were together. We talked about Joseph and Mary. What, what were they really like? Last time we talked about the shepherds and the wise men. Tonight I want to talk a little bit about the Christ of Christmas. The Christ of Christmas. Christmas has a definite purpose. We understand tonight that Jesus was probably not born in December. In the year zero. You know, that's the thought. Well, when he was born on December 25th, boom, that's when everything started. No, he was probably born in September of 6 BC. Not positive. No one, I, I, get, I mean, he knows for sure. Pope Julius I authorized December 25th to be celebrated as the birthday of Jesus in 353 AD. I don't know exactly the reason for that, but I thought about it some and studied some things. Jewish people among others, have always considered that the day of conception is the beginning of life. That, thus, their age was considered from the day they were born, from the day they were conceived. Okay, so if Jesus was born in September, when do you think he would be conceived? December. That makes some sense to me. And since he was believed, he was born on, by many, most people believe he was born on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish celebration of the new year, in late September, it would mean his conception would have been in late December. Maybe even December the 25th. Maybe Pope Julius was more prophetic than we know about. So that makes Christmas all right in December. So what is Christmas about? For most people, it's celebrating the baby. The celebration of Christmas is really that God became a man. God put on flesh, God became a man. I mean, the reason he became a man was so that he could take the curse, die for the sins of the whole world. He became a man for that purpose. I mean, it was so that you and I could come 
into the very blessing and the family of God because God became a man. And we get to go to heaven when we die. We're blessed here, blessed there. So tonight we're going to look at some of that. At this time of the year we talk about peace on earth, joy to the world, and silent night. And so think about that, peace on earth. We always think the Bible says peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's what the angel said. Literally it says, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. See, sometimes we, we want peace on earth. The only way there's real peace is in the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the only real peace. We pray, People talk about peace in the Middle East and they're working toward that. Well, it seems like the Bible prophesies just the opposite of that. And we want as much peace as they can have there. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem for sure. That's what the Bible says. Joy to the world. Joy can only come in the heart of the person who's received the kingdom of God by faith, by making Jesus Christ the Lord of his life. Christmas isn't the key to joy. The key to joy is Christmas, knowing that the babe of Bethlehem became the man of Calvary. So it's important because the baby was in the manger, but that that baby in the manger became the man of the cross and that he gave his life. He took a curse for us that we might receive the blessing of Abraham. So let's look at the first night of Christmas. It says, we read that a minute ago in Luke chapter 2, 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because it was, he was of the house and lineage of David. The Bible says he went up. Literally, he went up because of the elevation of Jerusalem compared to Nazareth. All right. They set out on this, on this journey, and it was a difficult one for anybody, much less a woman who was four, nine months pregnant and ready to give birth. Nazareth is about 70 to 90 miles from Bethlehem, depending on the route you take. All right, a person in good shape, traveling an average of 20 miles a day, the trip would normally take four days. But Mary was very pregnant. It probably took seven to ten days for them to get there because of all the stops they needed to take and all those things. And, and so it took them a long time. It wasn't easy. It wasn't an easy trip. But God ordained the trip. So what that tells me something tells me something about God. It tells me that God will not only inconvenience other people to change their plans in order to fulfill his plan in my life. It also says he will inconvenience me and maybe change my plans in order to get me where I need to be to fulfill my destiny. Sometimes we have this idea that if it's God, it ought to be easy. There ought to be nothing difficult if it's God. I remember when I was a young, spirit-filled believer, it's like, well, this can't be the will of God because it's too hard. <laughs> then I began to read what the Bible said. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's not God. Sometimes it means it is God. The cross, the scourging of Jesus, was they were horrific things, but they were part of God's plan to redeem man through Jesus Christ. As we serve God, things may be, well, let me just say it differently, things will be hard sometimes. There, there are going to be times that will be there. But if we're willing and obedient and do what he said, then he will supernaturally empower us to do whatever we need to do to fulfill his plan in our life. If we'll just do what he said. That's what Joseph and Mary were committed to doing. No matter how hard it was, they were willing to obey God. And God got them where they needed to be. And he brought them to the little town of Bethlehem. It's interesting. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. It's the house of bread. In John's Gospel, Jesus said several times, I am the bread which came down from heaven. So he, here we have the living bread that came down from heaven, was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Man, that is accurate. 
That's a perfect thing. And God fulfilled the prophecy through Micah that said he would come to be born in Bethlehem. I mean, and he became, he was birthed there for the supernatural nourishment of the entire world in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, the bread of life. It says, the Bible says that Joseph obeyed the Roman decree and he arrived in Bethlehem to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. When the Bible says she was great with child, one way to, to translate it would be she was very, very pregnant. Literally, it says she was very far along in her pregnancy. And then all of a sudden it happened. The miracle occurred. And, and we're still celebrating this miracle all over the world more than 2,000 years later. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, the word firstborn in the Greek literally means firstborn or the first of other children. There are lots of religions in the world that believe that Mary had just one child and that was Jesus. But we find in the Bible in Matthew chapter 13 that he, had, he, he was the firstborn. He had brothers and their names were Joseph. James, Jude, and Simeon. And it says, and his sisters. So he had at least two sisters. He could have had a dozen more siblings. It could have been all sisters or some sisters. But he wasn't the only child. And here we go. The phrase said he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. So what does that mean? This is pretty cool. The translation of this word, it, it literally describes bandages or strips of material used for wrapping the little legs of newborn lambs. When they were born, they would wrap them, and and that would have, they would have been available in the cave where Jesus was born. We'll talk about that in a minute. There were animals all around the night he was born, and so they wrapped Jesus' leg, his body, with these wrappings, these strips of cloth that they would have wrapped the legs of the lambs with. Okay, they were usually to wrap those baby lambs. They wrapped up Jesus. Why? He was and is the Lamb of God. Isn't that something? At his birth. The prophecy was being declared about him. I mean, they wrapped him up. His first appearance on earth foreshadowed his purpose for coming. The Lamb of God. Remember, John the Baptist declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is wrapped in these strips of cloth. I mean, he, he, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. I mean, that's very significant. That's why when the angel said, you'll find him, wrapped in swaddling clothes. He said, this is a sign especially for you. There would be no mistaking. These shepherds knew exactly what swaddling clothes were. They knew exactly what those strips of cloth were. And the Bible says that, that Mary laid Jesus in a manger. Now, and when I was a little boy, I always thought the manger was a barn. I mean, I thought that was it. I thought that he was in the manger. That was it. The manger, though, in the building, the manger is the Greek word for an animal's feeding trough. It was probably a big rock carved out. And that's where they laid Jesus in the manger. I mean, so they laid Jesus. Here they, they put him in this, in this manger or this trough. There's animals all around. They wrap him in these strips of cloth. I mean, that was the sign. To these shepherds. You'll find him. Everything about him relates to what you do. He's the Lamb of God. Here to take away the sin of the world. And as we talked about. They were keeping those lambs. They were offered sacrificially in the temple. So here he is. Jesus the Lamb of God. 
The Bible says that there was no room in the inn. When I grew up, this is what we were told, that Joseph and Mary were so poor that they couldn't afford to stay any place but in a barn. Okay, well, the reason they ended up in this cave with the animals is because they were too poor to pay for a room. I mean, that's what we say, too poor. However, the reason there was no room in Bethlehem for them to stay was because of the, the taxing and the people coming for the census. And because it took them longer to get there than most people, they arrived later than everybody else, and there simply were no hotel rooms. There was no place to stay. Everybody who could have guests had guests. And so they get to town later than anybody else. By the time they pull in town, there was nothing there. And all that was left was a cave. Here's why I know it was a cave. In Bethlehem, there were no barns. There were lots of caves. And that's where the sheep were housed at night. That's where the shepherd, shepherds brought their sheep. That's where people, that's what, what happened. Their barns were, were literally a cave somewhere behind the house or around the house. So Jesus was born in a cave, all right? But they were born there not because they were poor, but because they just got to town too late. I mean, those random caves were everywhere. And this particular cave was used as a place of refuge for shepherds and their flocks. It means that night when Jesus was born, it was anything but silent. I mean, they're in a cave. In fact, it had to be noisy. All the animals, probably lots of sheep in there, bleating, maybe cows, I don't know, maybe goats, probably other people who got to town late that didn't have hotel rooms. It wasn't just Mary and Joseph and nobody there. There were probably lots of people in this room, animals and people, and people are, they've been traveling, they're weary. So a lot was going on. So in this cave, I mean, it was right behind somebody's house, and they said, well, you can stay in the, in the cave. And that's where they wound up staying. And that, I think that's interesting. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.16, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote. He said, this is about the birth of Jesus. He said, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up to glory. That's really about Christmas. Did you ever stop and think about that? It's talking about Jesus was seen of angels, manifest in the flesh, seen of angels. The word manifest, the Greek word is phanerau, which means to appear, to become visible. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, I love this part, God appeared and was made in the flesh and he was seen for the very first time. Now, this wasn't the beginning of Jesus. This was the first time he became visible as God, clothed in flesh and blood and bone. He was completely human, yet completely God. The moment he was born, the invisible God became manifest, was physically seen, and we saw he was seen by angels. And the, the word for seen, is, is the Greek word is, is horao, which means to see, behold, to perceive, to delightfully view. It, it, it pictures a scrutinizing look. To look with the intent to examine or fully view or experience. Here he is. All of a sudden, God became a man. God put on flesh. They lay him in a manger. The angel appears to the shepherds and he says, This is how you're going to know who he is because we've already been looking in on him. Because they had never seen God in this form before. They had never seen God like that before. When he was born, I mean, he was there. It says, it says that he was seen. Suddenly, there, and we read this last time and later in Luke, it says, And suddenly it was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. The, the, the sky was filled with the armies of God because they came to see this king. They came to see God. And they had never, his glory was so bright in heaven. So they couldn't, even the angels couldn't look totally upon him.
But now he's a man. And they're looking at him. And they're singing all those songs, but they're also saying, what is man? Why would God be a man? That's why they desire to look on the things of salvation. They don't even get it. They can't understand why. They, they understand, I think, but it's like, God, man is so important to God that he became one of them. So that he could go and be seen of them. So they, could, so they could visually see God with their very own eyes. I mean, they viewed God like never before. I mean, that, that, that must have been pretty good. Just think if you were one of those angels, one of the army of heaven, and your assignment this night, go look at the king. Go look at God. Here's another passage of scripture that I think applies to Christmas. This is out of Philippians chapter 2, verse, verse 6 through 11. Who being in the form of God, talking about Jesus, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, of things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That passage of Scripture ought to be preached every Christmas. That is the story. That's what Christmas is about. I mean, it describes this, this, this incarnation that God was manifest in the flesh. Now, we use that passage more in Easter, but I tell you, it goes with Christmas really well. He, it, he was in the form of God, thought it was not robbery to be equal to God. I mean, he existed before. He came to the earth. He was equal with God. He exist, eternally existed in the form of God. The word form here is the Greek word morphe, which means an outward form. In his preexistent, he was not just a component of God, a symbol of God. Jesus is God. And we have to know that. He is God. As the eternal God, he possessed every attribute of God, including all power, glory, and splendor. I mean, he had so much glory and splendor, the angels really couldn't take a good look at him until he put on human flesh. And, of course, man had never seen him either. And so to overcome this barrier to man being able to worship him, God chose to change his form. And that's what we look at. God became a man. Being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. That, that, that little phrase, made himself of no reputation, the Greek word here is kanao, which means to make empty to vacate, to evacuate, to shed. When Jesus made himself of no reputation and he came as a man, he emptied himself. He vacated himself. He shed all of his godly attributes that prevented man from appearing in his presence. He gave us access. He divested himself of all his heavenly glory, his splendor, his power, and he took on a different form. That's what he did. The Bible says he took on him the form of a servant. I mean... He, he seized the form of a servant. That means God, the creator of the universe, reached into the material world, created and grabbed hold of human flesh and reclothed himself in the form of a man. This is the purpose of Christmas here. He, he redressed himself in the form of a servant. The word servant, I love this word in the Greek. It means one who does the bidding of his owner, one whose principal task is to fulfill the desires of his master. It means to help, assist, and fulfill his master's wants and dreams, and dreams to the exclusion of all else. 
The purpose of this servant's existence was service to the master in the way the master means when Jesus came to the earth. He came for a specific assignment. He came to fulfill the will of the Father and in doing whatever the Father asked him to do, even if it meant the death on the cross. That's why Jesus came. But there's more. It says he took upon him the form of a servant and made in the likeness of men. He was made. It means Jesus was made like a man in Mary's womb when he appeared on the earth. He became a man. I love it. When the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary, he told her, he said, he told her she was going to conceive a child. She said, how can this be? Shall this be? Seeing I know not a man. And the angel Gabriel answered and said to her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, that also that thing which is born of thee shall be called the Son of God. When he finished speaking, Mary didn't argue. She didn't ask any more questions. She simply said, Be it unto me according to thy word. And at that moment, the Son of God was formed in her womb. Because she simply believed the word of God. It says, it says And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The word fashion... It, 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 the word is schema in the Greek, but schema, when the Greeks heard this word, they understand it, they understood it was a story. It referred to a story of a king who wanted to live among his people, but because everyone would recognize him as the king, he'd be mobbed. So he looked over the kingdom, looked at, in the city, trying to decide what, what he could do. Finally, he decided if he was going to fellowship among his citizens and be among the people, he had to disguise himself and become like them. So he stripped off all his royal robes, all the kingly things that he had, and he put on regular people's clothing, and he went out into the city, and nobody recognized him as the king. That way, he could be with the people, and he was able to live and move among the people. And he did that frequently. When the Bible says Jesus was found in fashion as a man, it describes the father as the king in, this ancient, in that story. He loved creation so much, he longed to be with the people, longed to walk among the people. To overcome it, he took on the form of a servant, reached in the material world, grabbed flesh, and reclothed himself in the form of Jesus. Man, the Bible says that the people, we didn't, people didn't recognize him. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He humbled himself unto death. And this is the Christmas story. He humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I mean... This means to be humble, to be lowly, to be willing to stoop to any measure that is needed. God willingly stooped to the lowest place and became obedient. The word obedient, it literally means, it means, it means, uh, it talks about uh, someone who's under someone else's authority, listening to what the superior is speaking to him. So he heard the Father, did what the Father said. He humbled himself. And the Bible says that, the, that he carried out his orders even to the death of the cross. Man, so we understand he went to the cross, which was the worst of all executions. He was the highest. He was the lowest for you and I. But then the Bible says, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Because Jesus stooped so low, the Father exalted him and, and, and raised him to the highest place. I mean, the word here where it says highly exalted is the Greek word hooper upsao, and it means, it's, the only time it's ever used in the New Testament, it means to make exceedingly high, to elevate beyond, to the highest place, or to elevate exceedingly. As the Bible says, and God gave him, in the King James it says, and God gave him a name, which is above every name. Many people translate this, and God gave him the name, which is above every name. 
Many, many theologians believe that this is referring to the fact that God gave him the name of God because he is God, even though his name is Jesus. But Jesus is equivalent to, to, to that being God. And so he gave him the name that is above every name that is named. The word name is talking about fame and reputation. His obedience caused him to be above every single name. It means he's over and beyond. Jesus' name depicts something that's beyond measure, conveys the idea of superiority, something that is unsurpassed, unequaled, or unrivaled. God gave him that name. He has a fame and reputation above every name that is named. The word every in the Greek is the Greek word pan. And we get the most time it's translated all, but it means all. He's, he's above all. He's given a name above all names. Every name. Nothing excluded. I love it. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The word every is still that word pan. At that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Twice more this word every. Every knee, every tongue. No one excluded. At some point, every knee will bow before Jesus. The word bow means to bend the knee, to bow the knee in honor and respect. It says every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The word confess is the Greek word, not homologeo, but Ex homologeo, which means to declare and say out loud, to exclaim loudly, to confess, to divulge, to blurt out. Can you just think about that? Every person who's ever lived on this planet one day will shout out loud that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. I mean, without question, at some point in the history of mankind, that's what's going to happen. Every knee. Every tongue, past, present, future, they're going to honor and they're going to respect Jesus. They may say he's not Lord, but they will on that day. He is the Lord. The word Lord here is the Greek word kurios, which means Lord, supreme master. One day everybody, everybody is going to say, going to declare that Jesus is Lord. That's why we have Christmas. That's what we declare on Christmas Day. The story of the baby being born in Bethlehem is not just a story of a baby. It's the magnificent good news that God took on human flesh in the form of Jesus. He was born the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Through His stripes, we understand, and through His scourging, we find healing. Through His shed blood, we have forgiveness of sin. We have all of that because He was born in that manger or in, in, that, in that cave. As a result of his obedience and a death, he's been highly exalted to the highest place, and one day every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the absolute Lord, supreme master to the glory of God the Father. That's what we're going to do on Christmas Day at my house. We're going to declare, Jesus is Lord without fail, because that's what we do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, tonight we thank you that you became a man in the form of Jesus. We thank you tonight that as we celebrate this Christmas, that the Christ of Christmas is the Messiah that came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. We thank you, Jesus, that you've been highly exalted. And the word says that we are seated in you, but not because of what we did, but because of what you did. As the Lamb of God, you took away our sin. We worship you tonight. And we pray, God, that this Christmas season we dedicate ourselves to the reality of what Christmas is really all about. 
We give you praise. We give you honor tonight. We worship you in the name of Jesus, Lord. We thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.